0: Good morning. Uh, Do me a favor, Um, grab your Bibles, hide your wallets. We're going to be talking about tithing, okay? (laughs) And um, not really, we're not even talking about money. I don't know why I said that, but see some of you watched the video and you got scared, didn't you? Because she was talking about money. We're not talking about money today. We're in a different series. um, But since we're on the topic, um, (laughs) let let me say this. Um, And here's all I want to say about money this morning. Um. Thank you. Uh, this has been a difficult season for our church with closures and spacing and all the different things that we've had to do and the faithfulness of our church to continue to support the ministry here. See, see when, when you have to close or social distance, we still have expenses that don't go away. We have international commitments that don't go away. And uh, I just want to say thank you for your faithfulness. It has been a huge encouragement um, to the elders, to the staff, and to me as one of your pastors. Um, We are in a series called Tearing Down Strongholds. This is actually the third week in this series. I preached two weeks ago from 2 Kings 4, and we talked about the stronghold of complacency. And we talked about a, a widow who God uh, miraculously provided for by increasing her oil. And a couple things from that message just to remind you, God's only going to fill what you're willing to bring. And the the big idea was this, if you want to see God move, get moving. And then last week, Cal and Ryan at the two campuses, they talked on the subject of addiction. And and they defined addiction, I want to remind you of this, as a worship disorder. A voluntary enslavement to something we believe will provide temporary pleasure or relief. And then they developed that idea by taking you to the story of the prodigal son and looking at the steps that he took which led him into addiction. But then maybe even more importantly, how he broke free from addiction. And their main point was basically, if you want to break free from addiction, you've got to run back to the father. So we are now in the third week. We are going to be talking uh, this morning about the um, stronghold of self-reliance. Here's the logic or the method to the progression here. It doesn't do any good to get moving, to get back to the Father, if once we get there, we're going to rely on our own strength to live our lives to follow Christ interesting to get you started. We're going to be in Judges 7. Did I tell you that? Turn to Judges 7. While you're turning to Judges 7, let me give you some background from Judges 6. Here's what's going on in Israel as we pick up the story in Judges 7. In Judges 6, 1, it says, the people of Israel did what was evil in the sight of the Lord, and the Lord gave into the hand of it gave them into the hand of Midian for seven years. So, so when we pick up the story, what's happened is um, Israel disobedient to God. The Midianites have been brought in to to basically create the consequence to bring judgment for their disobedience. In verse, um, the 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 Israelites cry out for compassion from God, and what God does is He rises up a a deliverer. That deliverer's name is Gideon. Now, now Gideon's not your typical hero. It says in Uh, Judges 6, verse 12, And the angel of the Lord appeared to Gideon and said to him, The Lord is with you, O mighty man of valor. And Gideon said to him, Please, my Lord, if the Lord is with us, why then has all this happened to us? Okay, There's something interesting going on here. The, The Lord approaches Gideon and calls him a mighty man of valor. The only problem is he's never done anything courageous. There's nothing in his story up until this point that would um, make him worthy of being addressed that way by the angel of the Lord. His whole story is like, I'm not sure. Show me a sign. I'm going to put out a couple fleeces. Like, 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 I need to make sure that the things that you're telling me are true because you've got to prove them to me before I move. He's not on his own a man of valor. And there's this repeated theme that we see through scripture. God doesn't. Call the brave. He makes brave those He calls. God doesn't call the brave. He makes brave those He calls. You're going to see this throughout the Old Testament, and you'll see it into the New Testament. I'll give you some examples. Noah. If you were to go back to Genesis six, you would read in the first couple of verses that the hearts of men were on evil continually, and God was about ready to start over. But then you get this weird verse that says, "But Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. What made Noah favorable? God placed his favor on him. It wasn't that he was behave, uh, favorable before. God placing his favor on him, what's made, made him, what, what, what makes Gideon brave? God chooses him. God moves. God works first. You can see the same thing in the story of Moses. You see the same thing in the story of the disciples. The disciples don't strike me as brave men on their own merit. You continue to see them walk away. You continue to see them question. You continue to see them have fear of man. But through their walk and journey with the Lord, he doesn't call the brave. He makes brave those he calls. If you're keeping notes, here's the first point from Judges 7. Um, We want the starring role. As it relates to self-reliance, we want the starring role. So chapter 6, Gideon is called He says, I'm not sure. He puts out a fleece. God answers that sign. And then he says, I'll do it again tomorrow night. Just flip the what's wet, the ground of the fleece. God does it again. And now he has the courage because God has shown up, because he has the confidence that God is with him. And he tears down at the end of chapter 6, the idols of Baal. So we pick up the story in 7, verse 1. It says, then Jerubal... And then it says that is Gideon. So this guy's got two names. Jerubal, it's more of a nickname. What that literally translated means is fight with Baal. So because of what he did to the idols of Baal, he's got this other nickname, Jerubal. But that's just too hard to say. We're going to call him Gideon, okay? So Gideon and all the people who were with him rose early and encamped beside the spring of Harad. And the camp of Midian was north of them by the hill of Moreh in the valley Verse 2, and the Lord said to Gideon, the people with you are too many for me to give the Midianites into your hand, lest Israel boast over me, saying, my own hand has saved me. Okay, so we're dealing with this stronghold of self-reliance or being self-reliance. And it's interesting, a a, a definition, a Webster's definition of self-reliance is this, to depend on one's own powers and resources rather than those of others. To depend on one's own powers and resources rather than those of others. That sounds like a good thing. That sounds like a virtue. It doesn't sound like a vice. Why are we talking about self-reliance as if it's something bad or a stronghold? If you Google the word self-reliance, you'll find a list of articles will pop up. And those include embracing self-reliance. The art of manliness. How to become self-reliant. Steps you can take towards self-reliance. You can actually even go to self-reliant camp. I think it's in August. It doesn't sound like a lot of fun, but you can check it out if that's what you're you're into. But there's a lot of art articles encouraging self-reliance. And by the way, as a parent, we all want our kids to be self-reliant, right? We start with these uh, little babies that are utterly helpless, and then we bring them through that, through infancy, through childhood, through high school, and then we hope somewhere around 18 or 30, um, that they become able to take care of themselves. They can provide for themselves. They, um, they're self-reliant, right? And uh, beyond just being able to take care of themselves and provide for themselves, we want them to think for themselves. We don't want them to be people that just follow whatever the, the crowd or the culture is thinking. We want to see them form convictions. We want to be able to see them think for themselves, And then we get hurt or disappointed or angry when they think differently and form convictions different than ours, right? So is the role of the parent. But there's a lot of good that can be said about being self-reliant. Our country, sociologists will tell you that it's been formed by what is called the Protestant work ethic. The idea that we need to work hard, we need to take care of ourselves and not rely on anyone else. As a nation... We pride ourselves in our prosperity, that we don't have to depend on other nations. And we worry when we realize that our manufacturing supply chain um, or our pharmaceutical supplies are dependent on another nation. We don't want to be those people. We want to be able to take care of ourselves. And here's what I want you to realize. Much of this idea of self-reliance, it's not all a bad thing. But often our sin is not just a choice to do the wrong, it's actually a distortion of the good. That's how Satan often tempts us into an area that can be dangerous for us. And when self reliance becomes self dependence, when we believe we can do everything in our own strength, when in essence we believe that we are the star or the center of our own show, we're in danger. The, the, the pastor who works hard and toils to build a church, but in the end up makes the ministry all about himself. The farmer who is diligent and he plants in the spring and he works hard and his crop increases until the point where he has to big, build bigger barns to hold all the produce. And then he looks around and says, I've got everything that I ever need. The, the, the king who surveys his kingdom... And says, like Nebuchadnezzar said in Daniel 30, or Daniel 4, verse 30, is this not great Babylon, which I have built by my mighty power, has a royal residence for the glory of my majesty? Ruling the world, man, completely self reliant. Everything he's doing, he's doing in his own strength for his own glory. Self reliance just became dangerous. And the Lord's not amused. Look at the response in verse 31. It says, while those words were still in the king's mouth, there fell a voice from heaven. O King Nebuchadnezzar, to you it is spoken. The kingdom has departed from you and you shall be driven from among men and your dwelling shall be with the beasts of the field and you shall be made to eat grass like an ox. Whoa, 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 hold on, slow down. Self-reliance, which became self-sufficiency. Okay, maybe we understand the problem, but shouldn't the punishment fit the crime? Like, okay, I get it. The guy got a little proudful of everything that he had done. He was doing it for his own majesty, but did he really have to, for seven years, go completely out of his mind, let his fingernails and toenails grow, let his hair grow, and run around in the wild and eat grass and chew his cud? Like, is self-reliance really that bad? Well, apparently to God it is because that was the punishment for the things Nebuchadnezzar declared. And because it's nuanced, going from self-reliance to self-sufficiency, I'm just going to tell you, you've got to guard your hearts. It's subtle. It's tricky. I was thinking back. A weird thing happened to me when I was 25 years old. I'd been bouncing around in my first jobs after college. And when I was 25 years old, I started my own consulting firm with a partner. And here's what's odd about that. When you're 25 years old, you don't know enough about anything to consult. The very idea that anybody would pay you is remarkable to me, but, but I caught a wave when I was young. Uh, computers were kind of new into banking and real estate. I just aged myself, sorry, but it was, it was kind of mid to late eighties. And, and I had become very proficient in a specific software that was becoming very, very popular for banks appraisal firms, and real estate investment firms to use to value um, properties. It was used to build financial models and projections, and that was my thing, and I was really good at it. So so what I realized as a 25-year-old kid is that I could hire myself out to train other people how to run the software. I could do projects for companies, and I was finding myself in high demand. I was being flown out by big companies to Dallas, and, and, and my partner and I were busy. And and like it was weird because I didn't even know what I could charge. Like I remember the first couple times I went into a client or a potential client, like, like, I didn't even know how to bill. So I was like um, $50 an hour. Nobody blinks, and then it was like, an hour, nobody's still blinking. Thousand a day, nobody's blinking, but I'm happy. (laughs) And so I'm running around and then we split it. My partner was more the marketing guy and he would do the training and he would travel. I really didn't like that part of it. And so I would be the guy at home sitting on my computer doing all the work, which meant my life looked like this. I'd get up, the FedEx truck would come, they'd bring the leases, I'd enter them into the program, I'd build the model, I would send my finished product and the leases back. It was just the FedEx truck coming back and forth. I was working in my pajamas every day. I was loving life. The neighbors thought I was running drugs. It was awesome. <laughs> okay? Okay. And my father-in-law, who had been very, very successful at business, is looking at me, the guy who married his daughter, and going, this can't last. Like, there's no way. So in his mind, he rode to the rescue, and he said, I want you to come work for me. He had been very, very successful. And, and anyone from an objective point of view would say, that's a way better opportunity than what I was trying to build for myself. But here's the problem. I was building it for myself. I was cutting my own path. I was making my own way. And what I knew is if I took that job with my father-in-law, for the rest of my life, I was just going to be the son-in-law of the rich guy and I'd never get any credit for adding value. I would just be managing something that someone else created. I wanted to be self-reliant, see? This is how this thing can subtly entice us it's interesting. Back to the text. God says, The people that are with you are too many to give the Midianites into your hand. You can learn so much from this next phrase. Lest Israel boast over me, saying, My own hand has saved me. Right, listen, you're not the star of the show. And God doesn't take lightly to the idea. It is dangerous for us when we believe that we are self sufficient. God will not let that stand, and that's because he loves you. He will intervene. Three quick tests. If you you know you're self-reliant if, here's the first one. If you don't pray. If you don't pray. And I'm not talking about before dinner. And I'm not talking if you're in a small group and your leader calls on you to pray. That's not what I'm talking about. I'm saying, I, I don't know you've got to evaluate your own hearts. You just say, I don't pray. I'm not a man of prayer. I'm not a woman of prayer. I don't go to God. I don't, I don't worship him. I don't ascribe worth. I don't give him his proper place. I, I, I'm not one that will get on my knees and say, God, you're the star of the show. I, I don't confess my sin. When, when trials and circumstances come, I, I try to rely on my own strength. I'm not a man of prayer. That's not the first place that I run to. That's a sign that you're self-reliant. Here's a second. You're quick to assign credit or to take credit or assign blame. When, when, when you look back on your story, you're the main character. You slant your perspectives and your recollections to elevate and exonerate yourself. And here's a third one. You're easily inconvenienced. You know you're self-reliant if you're easily inconvenienced. You believe that the obstacles in your life, the trials, are annoyances rather than opportunities to present the gospel, to deflect the situation to the good news of God. So so three ways to know that you might be struggling with the stronghold of self-reliance. You don't pray. You're quick to take credit, assign blame, and you're easily inconvenienced. Okay, way too much talking, not enough scripture. Let's jump back into the story, okay? First point, if you're keeping notes, and by the way, you can quit keeping notes after this point because this is the main thing I want to teach today. Point number one, how God works, God weakens those he uses. God weakens those he uses. Look at verse three. Now, therefore, proclaim in the ears of the people, saying, whoever is fearful and trembling, let him return home and hurry away from Mount Gilead. Then 22,000 of the people returned and 10,000 remained. So so let me kind of give you what's going on here. You're the commander of an army of 32,000 men. You come up to the moment of battle. You've trained them, you've prepared them, you've got them ready. And then you say, hey, listen, if any of you are cowardly, you can go home now and two thirds of them walk away. It's a bad day. Now, one of the commentaries I read, they said, no, 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 this is actually a good day because if 22,000 of them are cowards, you'd rather have them go home anyways and just fight with 10,000 valiant men. It's a better plan. False. Okay, to to give you a scope of what they're going against when they go against Midian, Joshua 8.10 will tell you that in the valley, Midians, the Midianites and the Amalekites, there were 135,000 men in the valley that they were going against. So let's give a little grace to the 22,000 cowards, right? They were outnumbered like five to one, four to one. Quick math, I have no idea, but a lot, okay? Okay. 22,000 leave. Now you're left with 10,000. You're Gideon who struggles with courage anyways. I'm I'm not sure. Maybe Gideon tried to leave with the 22,000. I don't know how that worked, but Gideon's now left. There's 10,000 guys there ready to fight to go up against 135,000. And the Lord says in verse 4 to Gideon, the people are still too many. And Gideon said to the Lord, I have a lot of things to say to the Lord at that point, but the text doesn't go there. It says, the people are still too many. Take them down to the water, and I will test them for you there. And anyone whom I say to you, this one shall go with you, shall go with you. And any of whom I say, this one shall not go with you, shall not go. So he brought the people down to the water. Now, now get this. And the Lord said to Gideon, everyone who laps the water with his tongue has a dog laps. Shall be set by himself. Likewise, everyone who kneels down to drink, and the number of those who lapped, putting their hands to their mouths, was three hundred men. But all of the rest of the people knelt down to drink water. Okay, this is an odd test. So, so you go down to the lake, you go down to the river, you go down to the stream. You are very, very thirsty. How do you drink water? Do do you get down on your knees, put your face in the stream, and just start sucking? I I won't ask you to raise hands. Maybe some of you do that. Okay, maybe that's you. I'm thinking about it, and I either get down on my knees, or I get down and I scoop up a handful of water, right? And then I kind of suck it out of my hand. I cup the water in my hand, and I suck it out of my hand. It would never occur to me to lap the water like a dog does with his tongue and the description is very, very clear. If they lap it with their tongue, now I have a dog, I've watched it drink, it isn't pleasant, it goes everywhere. Like, like but, but he's saying those guys, the guys that take the water and lap it with, specifically, like a dog with their tongue, take those guys. And I'm thinking to myself, who does that? Apparently about 3% of the population. Because what's happened now is 300 men lap it like dogs. Those are the guys I don't want to go to battle with, by the way. But those are the guys that the Lord gives Gideon. 3% of the 10,000, which is a third of what he started with. His army has now been reduced from 32,000 men to 300 uh, men to fight a battle against 135,000 men. Please, this is not an underdog story. This is not the story of Notre Dame of the guy Rudy, okay? This is not Rocky versus Apollo Creed. This is your grandmother against Apollo Creed, okay? And I don't mean to offend, some of you are like, my grandmother's dead. Exactly, that's my point, okay? This is complete weakness write this down. If dependence on God is the objective, then weakness is an advantage. If dependence on God is is the objective, then weakness is an advantage. How can weakness ever be an advantage? Well, A.W. Tozer in his book, The Root of the Righteous says this, it is doubtful whether God can bless a man greatly until he has hurt him deeply. It It is doubtful whether God can bless a man greatly until he has hurt him deeply. Listen, if that weakness that is created, Gideon to rely on God, it's not a weakness, that's a strength. When, when you're alone, when you feel betrayed, when you're in a season where trust has been broken, you find yourself Alone. Sometimes it's in that season that God proves himself to be closer than a brother, right? Weakness being turned into strength. When you've lost your job, you're not sure how you're going to make ends meet at the end of the month. And God shows up and proves that he is the provider in your life, that's a weakness that is becoming a strength. When as a parent, you realize that all the books that you read and all the parenting conferences that you went to and as good a job as you tried to do Um, Is not producing the kids you thought that it would when you're faced with rebellion, when you're faced with disobedience, and now you're on your knees praying to God for doing and asking God to do what He could only do in the first place, which is melt hard hearts. Maybe in that moment, what you thought was your greatest moment of weakness is actually God trying to strengthen you. Sometimes God's going to reduce the size of your army so that you have no choice but to trust him. This is also true in New Testament, just to validate it with a cross-reference. Paul, in 2 Corinthians 12, verse 8, Paul has been given what he describes. We don't know exactly what it was, but a thorn in the flesh. And he keeps going to the Lord and saying, hey, please take this thing from me. It's a pain. It's a nuisance. It creates weakness. And it says in verse 8 of 2 Corinthians 12, three times I pleaded with the Lord about this, that it should leave me. But he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. For the sake of Christ, then I am content with weaknesses, insults, hardships, persecutions, and calamities. For when I am weak, then I am strong. Don't be surprised when God is doing the same things in your life. One of the most important truths we can ever learn is this. Our greatest strengths, if we are not careful, can be more dangerous than our weaknesses. Our greatest strengths can be more dangerous than our weaknesses. The big idea, again, if you're keeping notes, is this. Christians often pass the test of adversity and fail the test of prosperity. Christians often pass the test of adversity and fail the test of prosperity. Just remember this. Think back to the moment that you were saved. There had to be a time when you came to the point that you recognized your sin and said, there's nothing that I can do to save myself. There is nothing that I can do to reconcile myself to a holy God. So in some way, at some point, you had to cry out to the Lord to do what you didn't have the strength to do. You needed a savior. You needed someone to take your place, to be a mediator, to be an advocate, to take your sin and endure God's wrath in your place. That's what salvation is all about. Understanding that we are completely helpless and in desperate need of Jesus Christ. Agreed? Okay, How foolish or how illogical would it be to leave that point of complete dependence at the moment of our salvation and walk away from it believing that the rest of our lives, trying to follow after Christ and walk after him, we have the ability to do that in our own strength. Think about the example of Jesus throughout the New Testament. How many times does he withdraw from the crowds and the multitudes to get alone, get down on his knees and pray? and model for us his dependence on his heavenly father. If that's true for Jesus, how much more important is it for us? Je- Jesus will say in John fifteen five, I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. Get, get the last phrase. For apart from me, you can do nothing. For apart from me, you can do nothing. I look at a room with this many people. I I, I don't know what season you're in. And, and, And I don't know what trial or what struggle you're facing. Can I just suggest to you a perspective that you've not considered? Maybe what God is doing in this season through that trial or through that circumstance, maybe he's reducing your army. And maybe he's tearing down this stronghold of self-reliance because he wants to prove that he is sufficient, that he can be trusted, that his promises are true, that he is the star of the show. Maybe that's what's going on in this season because whoever God is going to use, you can bank on it. He's going to weaken them. Here's a second thing. God saves through humble obedience. Look at verse 9. That same night, the Lord said to him, him being Gideon, arise, go down against the camp, for I've given it into your hand. So here's what he's telling Gideon to do. I want you to go down to the Midianite camp that's in the valley, but, but you see what he declares before he says anything else? I've given it to your hand. It's yours. You're gonna win. Verse 10, but if you are afraid to go down, go down to the camp with Pura, your servant. Okay, so if you're afraid to go fight them, Do a little spy mission first. I'm going to send you and just your servant down to the camp. Verse 11, and you shall hear what they say, and afterwards your hand shall be strengthened to go down against the camp. Now, I'm trying to process this like Gideon would have had to process it. God, I'm scared of the Midianites, the 135,000 of them down in the camp. Okay, to alleviate your fears, here's my plan, Gideon, how about just you and one other dude go down to the camp in the middle of the night? See the problem with that? If I'm Gideon, I'm raising my hand, I'm saying, hey, God, how about you part that river? Then I don't have to go to the camp because it's it's hard to solve my fear of the camp by sending me to the camp. How about you level that mountain? Hey, God, just in case I brought the fleeces with me from chapter six, we, we can come up with a better plan than sending me and one other guy down to their camp in the middle of the night. But God tells Midian to go down, or Gideon to go down into the middle of their camp close enough that he can overhear a conversation. God sometimes develops our faith by asking us to take a step of faith. And sometimes that step of faith is scary for, for Gideon's faith to grow, he had to take a step of obedience. look at the end of verse 11. Then he went down with Pura, his servant, to the outposts of the armed men who were in the camp, and the Midianites and the Amalekites and all the people of the east lay along the valley like locusts in abundance, and their camels were without number. I don't think you see they got closer. he was getting less scared. Their camels were without number has the sand that is on the seashore in abundance. Verse 13, and when Gideon came, behold, a man was telling a dream to his comrade. Comrade? So is it the Amalekites and the Midianites and the Russians? Comrade? Like, where'd that word come from? Like, that caught me off guard. Another thing happens. When he gets down to the camp, God's going to prove himself that he's going to give the camp into the hand of Gideon. So all of a sudden, these Russian comrades are talking. And one of the guys says to the other guy, hey, let me tell you the dream I had last night. Now, a couple things odd about that. Dudes don't tell dudes their dreams. Can we agree on that? <laughs> it's just weird. So, so, so about like three weeks ago, I'm standing by the coffee machine, the Keurig. I'm getting my cup of coffee. I'm at church. And Pastor Craig comes up to me and goes, hey, I had a dream about you last night. Can I tell you about it? No. Creeper, go back to your office. <laughs> like, like, dudes don't do that. Okay, so just know, everything going on now has just gotten weird, okay? And, and it doesn't get a lot, weir- lot better. He, he tells them the dream. So here's what he says. Where am I at? I'm at the end of verse 13. And he says, behold, I dream dream. I'm not going to do the whole Russian thing. That'll, that'll get old quick. And, and, and behold, a, a cake of barley bread tumbled into the camp of Midian and came to the tent and struck it so that it fell and turned it upside down so that the tent lay flat. And his comrade answered, this is no other than the sword of Gideon, the son of Joash, a man of Israel. God has given into his hands Midian in the camp. <laughs> okay. Um, this dream is reassuring and insulting at the very same time. Sometimes God does that. So, so the good news is, Gideon gets close enough, he obeys God, he takes a small step of obedience, he goes down to the camp with his servant. They get close enough that they can hear a conversation where one guy's telling the other guy the dream, and the dream is this, a piece of barley bread bumped against the tent, knocked it down, and somehow the other guy goes, I know exactly what that means. That's Gideon smashing the Midianite army. That's reassuring, correct? Okay, here's the bad part. Let me do this by way of illustration. Uh, when I started pastoring here, I was also coaching soccer at Western Michigan Christian. This is going to get me in so much trouble. Um, so I'm coaching soccer at Western Michigan Christian. Western Michigan Christian has been around for a long time. They're called the Warriors and they have an Indian head. And now all of a sudden we got this issue because you've got Indian heads and Warriors and is this socially acceptable? So there's a debate. Do we change the name? Do we, what do we do? And someone came up with this wonderful idea, rather than Warriors, why don't we call ourselves the West Michigan Christian Rise Up? Warriors rise up. That's going to take me one second to figure out which one of those I want. Okay? Now, the problem is because I wanted to be helpful, I, didn't, I understood the problem with both of those names. I said, why don't we just call ourselves the West Michigan Christian Barley Biscuits? <laughs> I think it's a way better name based off Genesis or Judges 7, right? The Barley Biscuits. That will instill fear into the hearts of our opponents. Oh, here come the Biscuits. I did a little bit of research. There's actually a double-A baseball team called the Birmingham Biscuits. So, so sad, okay? So, so that's the insulting part of the dream. But the dream's communicating two things. God's given this to you. Even the comrade could figure that out. And then another thing, it's not about you. This is the Lord's doing. Verse 15. As Gideon heard the telling of the dream and its interpretation, he worshiped going to come back to that. And he returned to the camp of Israel and said, arise for the Lord has given the host of Midian into your hand. Verse 16. And he divided the 300 men into three companies. So now you got three groups of a hundred guys. And he put trumpets into the hands of all of them and empty jars and torches inside the jars. Okay. So you're with Gideon. Maybe you're the hundred that are with one of the hundred that are with Gideon. There's two other groups of a hundred and Gideon says, okay, we're going to prepare for battle. Here's a, um, torch, and here's a trumpet, and here's an empty jar. How you doing? You're like, I wish I would have just knelt down and sucked it right out of the stream, right? Like, like, like you're not happy that you're there. You're like, Gideon, <laughs> we seem to be missing the main thing. Like, sword? Guns? I don't know. not know. Verse 17. He said to them, look at me and do likewise. When I come to the outskirts of the camp, do as I do. When I blow the trumpet, I and all who are with me, then blow the trumpets also on every side of all the camp, So they've surrounded the camp. They're up on the hill. The 300 dudes spread out with their jars, their torches, and their trumpets and shout for the Lord and for Gideon. Verse 19. So Gideon and the hundred men who were with him came to the outskirts of the camp at the beginning of the middle watch when they had just set the watch. And they blew the trumpets and smashed the jars that were in their hands. Then the three companies blew the trumpets and broke the jars. And they held, the, uh, they held in their left hand the torches. And in their right hands the trumpets to blow. And they cried out, a sword for the Lord and for Gideon. So, so let me describe what's going on. It's the middle of the night. It's right after there is a guard switch. So there are tired guards who've just woken up. They're still groggy. They're going out on watch. There's another third of the Midianite army. They're sound asleep. And another third of the Midianite army is exhausted. They're just coming back from the watch and they're looking to get to bed. Everything is dark. And all of a sudden, there are trumpets surrounding them. There are jars being broken. Torches are being lit. And in the confusion and in their tiredness in the middle of the night, all of a sudden what happens is the guys who are asleep see soldiers coming back into the camp and they mistake them for the enemy rather than their... Well, I guess comrades. This is this, verse 21. So every man stood in his place around the camp and all the army ran. That's the Midianite army. They cried and they fled. When they blew the 300 trumpets, listen, listen, this is important. The Lord set every man's sword against his comrade and against all the army. And the army fled as far as they just ran. I don't know what that next word is. And then there's other big words, so we're just gonna stop, okay? So, so, what happens is they hear this clatter up on the hillside, they see the torches, and they basically turn on each other because God made them turn on each other and they destroy themselves. Okay, here's a question. We've just gone through the whole chapter. When did Gideon, when did Gideon get this plan from God? When did God tell him how to conduct this battle? Where'd the strategy come from? Do you remember? I don't remember reading that, do you? There's no place where God instructs Gideon to split them into three companies and to take the torches and the trumpets and the jars. God never instructs him. Gideon came up with that because weakness forced him to do what he wouldn't normally do. Normally, he would have taken the 32,000 men, even though the odds were long, and conducted in close armed warfare. But his weakness, which God, the position God put him in, the weakness that he found himself in, forced him to come up with a different plan. And I'm going to argue all day it was a better plan. Here's why. First, it resulted in victory. Second, there was not one Israelite casualty. If 32,000 had attacked 135,000, I'm assuming that wouldn't have gone well. There would have been a toll. There would have been injuries. There would have been dead. In this plan, not one casualty. Here's another thing. It's interesting. After they attacked, verse thirty twenty three, and the men of Israel were called out from Naphtali and from Asher, just the different tribes and all of Manasseh, and they pursued after Midian. So, so as the 300 are winning the battle and the Amalekites and the Midianites are fleeing, the 300 start calling out, hey, let's get after them. And all the cowards and all the guys who drank wrong come out of their camps, and now they're engaged in the battle. The cowardly now have become courageous. This is such a better result, such a better plan. Gideon's weakness actually became a strength. Okay, so, so how do we apply this to ourselves? I actually think the, the application is simple. If, if we have signs that it, you, you, you have a problem with the stronghold of self-reliance, if you don't pray, how do we rid ourselves of self-reliance? It's prayer. It's prayer. Some struggle with prayer. They don't feel that God's listening. They're not sure that they're being heard. They're not sure that they're worthy to go into the presence of God. Let me assure you of a couple things. You are being heard because he promises to hear you. And if you're worried about your worthiness, you're not worthy on your own. You're worthy because Jesus Christ is worthy. And we're told actually in 1 John that we have an advocate at the right hand of the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. A fear of going to prayer because we're not worthy is a denial that Jesus Christ is worthy. And when we go to prayer, here's what we're doing We're telling God He's the star of the show. Your kingdom come, your will be done. And we're denying our self-reliance. Give us this day our daily bread. We're asking for the strength to be obedience. We're acknowledging that we need his help. See, prayer is what tears down the stronghold of self-reliance. Here's the second thing. Small steps of obedience. Small steps of obedience. I found it really interesting in Jennifer's testimony at the beginning. She's telling you she's struggling with putting all of her dependence on money. And she's got this voice in the back of her head says, I should be tithing, I should be tithing. But she had to take the step of obedience to get baptized until she could deal with the bigger issue, which was the dependence on money. See, see, sometimes we take the small step of obedience that's right in front of us, and by doing that, God is going to give us the faith to take the next step. I think this, I personally, I think following Jesus Christ, it should work like this. I start to walk down the path, and street streetlights and spotlights the whole way. I know the whole journey, the whole thing's lit. But the problem is, our walk with Jesus And our faith is always described as, that word's a a lamp unto our feet. We only see the next step. Do you you understand? And sometimes God's asking us to take that one step of obedience and see if he won't prove himself faithful to provide the strength that we need for the rest of the journey. And then back back to verse 15. I told you I'd come back to this. When Gideon heard, when he had the confidence that God was going to deliver the Midianites into his hand, he worshiped. God, this is who you are. This is why I need you. Giving God proper credit. So, as we close, I'd love to tell you that that's how the story ends. That this is the high point and everybody lived happily ever after. But it's just not true. In chapter 8, Gideon begins to take on personal vendettas. He gets prideful. He reads his own headlines and press releases. And in Judges 8, 27, it says this, Gideon made an ephod or an altar and put it in his city and all Israel whored after it there. And it became a snare to Gideon and his family. Chapter chapter 8, verse 30, now Gideon had 70 sons, his own offspring, for he had many wives, Thanks for that clarity, okay? Verse 31, I want you to hear this. And his concubine was in Shechem, also bore him a son, and he called his name Abimelech. By the end of chapter 8, Abimelech will rise up and kill the other 70 brothers. Judges eight thirty-three. as soon as Gideon died, the people of Israel turned again and hoard after the Baals and made Baal-Bareth their god. And the people of Israel did not remember the Lord their God who had delivered them from the hand of all their enemies on every side. Like, this doesn't end well. Because there's something in our hearts that the moment that we say that we're dependent on God and he shows up in a powerful way and he intervenes and he shows himself faithful, we're so prone to wander that we'll walk away from that thing and try to do it again in our own strength. Isn't that true? 2 Corinthians, or 1 Corinthians 10, 12 says, Therefore, if anyone... Thinks, uh, therefore, let anyone who thinks he stands take heed, lest he fall. Guard your heart. Examine your heart. Are you a person of prayer, or are you doing all of this in your own strength? Because to come to the moment of salvation and walk away in an attitude of self-reliance, it's foolish. And I'm telling you, God's going to deal with it. He takes it seriously. I recognize there might be some in this room who say, I'm attending church, I'm listening. I'm not convinced, I'm not a follower. And I would just ask you this, if you're doing it in your own strength, how's that going? Who are you leaning on? I think too often when we do things in our own strength, when we believe that we're self-reliant, We come to a point, we come to a dead end when we're not satisfied, we're lonely. See, here's the problem. You can be a self-reliant, you can be a self-sufficient, take pride in it if that's what you wanna do. But here's the issue, there's two things that you can't solve on your own, sin and death. And I would just ask you to encourage the claims of the cross as it relates to sin, The fact that we don't measure up, the fact that we fall short, the fact that we disappoint others and ourselves. Listen, I'll acknowledge that, that's true of me. But here's the good news, the cross of Jesus Christ tells us that Jesus took our sin in our place for God's wrath. And in doing so, I am justified. It's not that I'm without guilt, but my penalty has been paid because I've been redeemed. What an incredible truth. And as it relates to the power of death, there's an empty tomb. Jesus took our place. He defeated death on our behalf. And the two things that we can never solve in our own self-reliance, Jesus has done for us. The so case well, the question is, what are you gonna do with it? Will you humble yourself? Will you cry out for a savior? Let's, let's pray. Father, I thank you for your word. I thank you for this story. I uh, would pray that we would be um, a people that is that has the courage to search our own hearts. Father, this is a series. This is a study that um, I know as a staff, we've been in prayer over this. As the pastors who have preached it, we have been convicted. We want to see you move amongst our people and we want to see lives transformed. So we pray in your power, do what it takes to bring us to the place where we will cry out to you and say, I'm done with these strongholds. Lord, if you need to weaken us to prove that you are strong and that you are faithful, we give you permission. It's in Jesus' name we pray, amen.